welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. So on our last episode, you heard my guest host, Lizzie Thomas, give an incredible reading of an extremely long letter from Elizabeth Park Custis Law to her friend David Bailey Warden. Uh, the letter itself is from April 20th, 1808. If you've not yet listened to that episode, you should go back and listen to the previous one because you'll need the context. <laughs> now, Lizzie and I actually had a really delightful hour-long discussion about this letter, but due to technical difficulties on my end uh, and my own error, I actually lost all of my audio for our conversation, but I have all of Lizzie's audio. So what I'm going to do is a different sort of podcasting technique where I'm going to cut in Lizzie's comments along with the comments on my end, and we'll see how that all turns out. So welcome if you're new to the podcast. This isn't our usual format, but we'll see how it goes. So as a, a brief recap of the letter, Elizabeth Park Custis Law, shortly after separating from her husband, they weren't divorced yet, they were separated, wrote this incredibly long letter to her friend David Bailey Warden, which basically serves as an autobiography. She's telling him about her childhood, even before her childhood. The entirety of the letter doesn't survive. It actually cuts off uh, while George Washington is president. But you get sort of a gist of Elizabeth Parkhouse's law, at least her own view of her life and her personality from this very, very long letter. The letter, as it survives, was published in the 1940s by a man named William D. Hoyt. And in his introduction to the letter, he described her as a person of extremely egocentric composition, a woman who, quite as a matter of course, observed events as if she were the hub of the universe, who made no bones about the fact that she was first and best in every way. When I read a male historian describe any woman like that, it kind of makes some alarm bells go off. <laughs> because, because this is sort of a classic example of a woman showing a type of assertiveness and self-confidence that would be considered maybe a little eccentric for a man, but sort of acceptable for a man. And then in this is something that makes her terrible, right? That she's extremely egocentric uh, and just out of line because it's not falling into her feminine role, which the letter itself shows that Elizabeth Parkhurst's law was not very good at fitting into the 18th century feminine roles of her time. And she's still being punished for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not looking into trying to turn Elizabeth Parkhurst's law into some sort of like girl boss feminist icon. She definitely was pretty full of herself, but I think we should acknowledge that she's a human being and a lot of human beings are full of themselves and try to maybe examine why she might be writing the letter the way that she does uh, and what it tells us about her and about her family. Like she's still very much a spoiled plantation daughter of the South. Uh, and I think that you need to keep that in mind as you're looking at what she's like as a person. But the fact that she is the way that she is, is still really interesting. And I just want to point out that historians regularly write way crazier things about George Washington than Elizabeth writes about herself. Like, people would talk about how great and blessed George Washington's family is the same way that Elizabeth Park Custis does. So let's just all calm down. <laughs> Lizzie, who in her job as a costumed interpreter uh, and first-person interpreter at Colonial Williamsburg, has actually portrayed Elizabeth Park Custis Law in the past. 
So her take is a little bit more nuanced, I would say, than Hoyt's. My first impression of her, it was it was for a Christmas program, and so it was very much focused on the Washington family. And so my first impression of her really was just her place within the family. She seemed to have a very strong personality. And um, I hear more about her sister, Nellie. I think you can tell a lot about Eliza if you just look at her portrait. I don't know if you have seen her portrait. For those who haven't, just, just Google her. And she's got her arms crossed. Like, she's got her hat in her hand, or I guess her bonnet, actually. And she, she's sort of looking at you like, what? So that was my first impression of her, was her portrait. I was like, okay, we, we are working with a, a very bold, I think, someone who is very, um, at least I'm sure in her mind, very knowledgeable about herself. Someone who is very self-assured. So I think that Elizabeth Park Custis Law is both a self-centered person and a person who is thinks very highly of her own abilities, and also a person living in a time where she is very much discouraged from behaving that way. And the fact that she is and so stubbornly continues to do that is somewhat admirable. One of the things that really strikes me is what she says at the beginning. I wish not to appear better than I am. And I'm like, but do you? But I also think it's doing Elizabeth Park Custis a disservice to look at this letter as just something that happened out of the blue that she just wrote for no reason to her friend, uh, just to talk about how great she is. I think you have to look at the fact that this is a letter that she wrote shortly after separating from her husband. And it is a massively public separation. I actually spoke to uh, the scholar Cassandra Good on this subject. She's got a book coming out about the Custis heirs. And she points out that this was what everybody in Washington, D.C. was talking about. Like, how scandalous was it that Elizabeth Park Custis Law was separating from her husband? So she's feeling betrayed by Washington society. Uh, she's feeling very much alone. Her family's not necessarily coming to her aid. And... She is mad, I think, comes through clearly here. She is mad at Thomas Law, her ex-husband. So if you look at this as kind of a raw letter from a woman who is, has been spurned and who is defending herself and who's kind of passive-aggressively trying to make her ex-husband feel bad, that makes so much of what she says make a lot more sense. So I think that is why she has these examples of massive self-confidence and ego mixed in with these moments of sort of extreme self-pity. The, the way that she describes how her father looked at her mother, you know, how his heart was unchanged and warm and unchangeable and he would never deserted her mother. Sort of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, hint, hint. So if you take the letter that way, I think the way that she writes about her father makes a little bit more sense. Um, she writes in very glowing, almost uncomfortable terms about her father. God of love. You know what I pictured when I read that? Michelangelo's David. Like, but, but as Jackie Custis, like full, fully clothed. Okay, fully clothed, first of all. But just standing on a pedestal. Like, I seriously think that's how she looks at her dad. 
when and when she's describing how loyal and how faithful and how absolutely in love with her mother her father was she says his heart when fixed was incapable of perfidy and desertion that's gotta be to thomas law like she's writing that to make thomas law feel bad her dad died when she was young. He's sort of been built up as an icon in her mind. She's using this example of her father's loyalty to her mother as something that her ex-husband has absolutely not lived up to. I love that she starts the letter before she's even born, talking about her family history uh, and the Custis family. The point I'm trying to make here is she has clearly received very glowing family stories about the quality of the Custis family going way, way back. And when you look into it, the Custis family is a hot mess. <laughs> there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of absolutely miserable, famously miserable marriages. Uh, her dad, she talks about how wonderful and great her dad was. He's described as a terrible student. I don't know if necessarily there's a lot of historical backing for him being so desperate to go out and fight in the American Revolution. He was a pretty comfortable, wealthy, kind of lush sort of guy from most descriptions, uh, his tutor's descriptions of Jackie Custis are absolutely hysterical. You know, I vaguely remember hearing about that letter Washington sent of like, I think my stepson has gotten worse. He he now spells words with numbers. Is this part of like just some cipher I'm missing? No, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I don't want anybody to leave your podcast and be like, did you know Jackie Custis spelled words with numbers? it's interesting because didn't washington they looked at william and mary i feel like for a minute but william and mary at the time was considered to be a somewhat party school right yeah and so didn't it was king's college eventually that that they went to but yeah and then he ends up in annapolis my co-host has an interesting theory about why elizabeth park custis law is so wrapped up in her childhood and her early childhood uh, and I think part of that comes from Lizzie's training as a costumed interpreter, where she points out that as a very young child, the gender roles weren't so set in stone at this time. Little boys and little girls wore the same clothes. They were running and playing in the same places. So as as a little girl, she wasn't quite hit with all of the cultural expectations just yet. But when she was four, a lot of young boys would also be running around in skirts, in dresses. So there, there wasn't an, an easy or a quick, rather, way to immediately see her as a girl, as female. And the how specifically when she mentions how, if only she were a boy, what promise she would have. So she also seems to, she has this, you know, interlude about Dr. Reed and him being so en, enraptured with her in a way, a way, when she's four. And yet... When she begins to grow, she seems to resent the fact that, you know, she really, maybe, actually, maybe they are connected, but she's just resenting the fact that she, I think, is, you know, she's going through puberty. Biology is doing what biology does. And she is more easily seen by outside forces as being female. And so then, okay, you are female, therefore this, 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 all these expectations. And it's almost this resentful, well, maybe resentful's a little bit strong, but she's frustrated, I, I feel like, because it's like, well, if only I were a boy, and when I'm young, and all the other boys, including myself, were all running around in skirts, I can at least be seen as a boy. It's like I'm taken more seriously when I'm four years old versus when I'm female. 
and you know that frustration of just because I go through puberty doesn't mean I lose my mind. The part of the letter where where Elizabeth Park Custis Law talks about her education and how she was very quick and she could have learned everything that a boy learned, but she wasn't allowed to, and the fact that she wasn't allowed to and was forced to only learn things that girls could learn made her actually resent and dislike the things that girls were supposed to learn is really interesting. Um, for me, it's somewhat relatable. I used to be one of those, like, not like other girls, people myself. Uh, and so to see that 200 years ago in a letter like this is really interesting. Some of the stories, though, when she's talking about her behavior as a little girl are just sort of like those cute stories that enter your family lore. I particularly enjoyed the stories about her singing songs uh, to her dad and his friends. This is definitely something where I have a story, not not dirty songs, sorry, but I <laughs> I have a story like this of like I'm two or three years old and uh, my ever patient mother is like, um, what do we think we're doing? <laughs> like, you know, like I love how she describes her mom just kind of, you know, happening on this scene and her dad's like, it's fine. It's great. She doesn't know half of what she's saying. It's fine. And her mom's like, okay. This is... <laughs> and with such gusto, you know, how I had such a commanding presence and, you know, strutting. I love her description of strutting about the table. Now, the very lengthy section describing the death of her father, this is just such a valuable historical resource because this is something that was very key moment for Martha Washington. It was a very key moment for George Washington because this was Martha Washington's last remaining child who died. And there's many descriptions of his death from George and Martha's viewpoint. To read it from the perspective of his daughter, I think, just really adds another valuable lens and all of her details for these things sometimes she's definitely looking at things through rose-colored glasses but the details and the timeline of what's going on in her family's life even the stories when she's a toddler are pretty spot on actually just like any historical source you have to read it with a grain of salt to see who's saying what what perspective they have elizabeth park law is very much making her own historical argument about her family namely that her family is the greatest and she's really great and smart but the facts of when things happen and how they happen are actually pretty good. So I thought that the, the section about her father dying was really interesting and something that definitely deserves a serious historical study. But then she goes right into, again, some of the more interesting takes about her mother's choices afterwards. I'm sure Dr. Stewart was fine, you know, yeah. He's like, I just want to, like, be nice to your mom, okay? Like, I'm trying to help you out. And, you know, she does sort of grumbling, like, give him a little bit of credit for, and her mom, too, when she talks about, you know, Eleanor remarrying. She does kind of grumble about, like, I guess it was to protect our fortune. I guess it was to protect my inheritance. Oh, bother. And it's like, he's trying to help you. <laughs> like, stop reading Romeo and Juliet. Just read much ado about nothing for a minute it's fine it does seem a little bit rough that she's basically complaining that her mother didn't die after her father dies it could sound a little callous but again if we take the letter as something that elizabeth is writing out of a place of anger and bitterness after her husband has left her i think that adds a little nuance to it because she could be saying so like for a woman to be loved by a man so completely and then to lose that man she should wither away 
She could be saying, look at me, you're making me wither away. Or she could also be saying, you clearly don't love me that much, so I'm not going to wither away and die. <laughs> uh, something that struck my co-host Lizzie as she was listening to it is how some of this letter really does feel like something that a really angry 15-year-old, really emotional person would write, which even though Elizabeth was in her 30s when she wrote this letter, I think the emotional state uh, after having the entire society of Washington, D.C. turn against you uh, and have your husband abandon you, I think that puts you in a pretty similar emotional state. So there, as much as there are parts of this letter that are surprising to me, there are parts that are also very relatable. I know I wrote letters like this when I was like 15 and, you know, like listening to MCR going like the world is a cold dead shoe or something like that. I mean, you know, like... That's not a verbatim quote, but I'm just saying, like, I'm sitting here in judgment, and I'm like, there's a little piece of, there's a little bit of my mind that's just kind of popping up some memories to, to check myself a bit. Now, the way that Elizabeth Parkustis Law writes about her grandparents shows that there was a close relationship, and I believe 100% there was a close relationship. I believe that somebody like Martha Washington was taking a very active role in raising these little grandbabies, and that she was very close with them. I think that looking at the letter as a document that's making sort of a point about her life, she's sort of showing that these heroes, Martha Washington and George Washington, the greatest of all American heroes, loved me so much, uh, is something that's sort of adding to the point that she's making in the letter. I want, I couldn't let the section on talking about all of the slaves crying when uh, Martha Washington left go by. I think a really important thing to point out is that when Martha Washington and the grandkids were going off to New York when George Washington was president, she was taking quite a few enslaved people with her, people with large families, so Maybe some of these people weren't just crying over who's essentially their boss, the person who owns them leaving, and maybe they're crying at the fact that their daughter is going away for what might be several years to a place where you don't know you're ever going to see them again. So always keep that in mind. People are always trying to make the argument that uh, enslaved people were just so obsessed with the white family. It's always coming from the white family saying that. Uh, so you've got to take all that with a grain of salt. God bless her. You know, she's trying, but there are times where like with Dr. Stewart, I don't necessarily trust her opinion on the matter. And so I actually want to go and do a little bit of research on my own about Dr. Stewart and about the reptile tutor, who's, that's not his name. I'm going to learn his name. But you know, the fact that he was with Arthur Middleton, I'm like, okay, that's a place to start, you know? Now, I've mentioned before that even people who are really interested in George Washington and Martha Washington and Mount Vernon and this history, a lot of times they don't even know that Elizabeth Parkustis Law and her sister Martha exist because they didn't live with Martha and George in New York and Philadelphia, uh, and they had slightly more of a distant relationship. They weren't raised by Martha in the way that Nellie and George Washington Parkustis were. And I do think that it provides some evidence for the fact that there was a little bit of resentment between Martha and Elizabeth, the older siblings, and the younger siblings that got to go be essentially American royalty in like the biggest and most bustling cities of the early United States. I think you can tell a little bit that Elizabeth wished that she could have gone and lived with her grandmother. Clearly, she wasn't a huge fan of Dr. Stewart. 
Uh, doesn't seem like she was very close with her mother's family. So you read her write about this as though it's sort of a tragedy that she wasn't able to spend as much time with her grandmother, who she adored. But she does visit them from time to time. And there's a quote from a Martha Washington letter where she describes this visit. So I'm going to read this quote. She says, Betsy Custis told me she wished to stay with me. And I wrote to her mother for her permission, which she readily gave. She seemed to be very grave. I was in hope that being in the gay world would have a good effect on her. But she seems to wish to be at home, and very much by herself. She takes no delight to go out to visit. She would not go with Nellie and myself to the assembly last week. She don't like to go to church every Sunday, thinks it too fatiguing. To be always in... This part of the letter was mutilated, but it's probably something like to be always in company. She often complains of not being well. She looked ill when she first came here, but is much better, and looks better though she does not like to be told so. The girls has lived so long in solitude that they do not know how to get the better of it. Betsy seems to be reconciled to be alone. So I think that's interesting that even when she is out of this house that she doesn't really like, and she feels very isolated in the Dr. Stewart house while she's living with her mother and family, once she actually does go to the gay world of Philadelphia, where she could go to assemblies and be in company, she doesn't particularly like that either. Or at least she, it takes her a little while to adjust to it at the time that they're writing this letter. So if this might be Elizabeth's personality might just be a little bit not... She's not going to be content with just about anything. All in all, if you're going to summarize this letter, it seems like Elizabeth is a person who is frustrated with her options as a woman. In whatever opportunities that are given to her, dancing, she seems to particularly like dancing, even though she thinks it's dumb and womanly, she's going to be the best at it. Music, she's very good at music, but because it's a womanly thing, then she started to spurn it. She wants to be a serious person the way that men are considered to be serious people, and she's just not allowed to at any point. Um, later in life, people describe her as wearing men's clothing, wearing sort of outlandish clothing. She buys her own house. Like uh, for a few years, she actually has her own sort of plantation household, which is something that women, single women almost never were able to do. Widows were able to manage a plantation, but they're always looking for a new husband. Elizabeth, after getting divorced, buys her own house. Uh, and she uses her privilege and money to try to do some of the things that men are able to do. And what ends up happening is she's spurned by her family. She's sort of teased and made sort of a laughingstock by Washington, D.C. society. And she ends up as one of those unmarried women at this time that because they're not able to maintain their own household, they're not able to make enough money to do that, just visits from family member to friend to family member. Just these sort of homeless women who have a position in society who just stay with other people. Uh, until she passes away, uh, and she dies at a friend's house. You know, the what really, every single time I've read it, what really just continues to stand out to me is she is so proud, judging by this letter, of her intellect, of the fact that she was known as a scholar. You know, she could do arithmetic. She wanted to learn Greek and Latin and all the things that the boys got to learn and that being told you don't need to and again as she grows and is seen more and more as a woman and like physically and so people view her and when they view her as female they put certain expectations on her whether or not they know her 
so being just and so it, as that continues then of course those expectations begin to supersede perhaps our own desires you know like you don't need to learn arithmetic you need to learn what eligible bachelor is in town so you can make a good match right so you can be protected i mean there it wasn't quite as mercenary i think that sometimes we might hear about it you know there there was just by property laws there was a real incentive for making a good match with somebody who did have financial assets to protect you um, because just the way the laws were set up you couldn't really protect yourself in in most cases there's always an exception to the rule and actually in Virginia and Maryland there were bits and pieces of English law that did allow for certain married women I say certain we're talking free mostly gentry mostly with connections you know old-time gentry that you could actually have some you could you could have some recourse and in, in if your husband had sold property that you brought to the marriage certain property that you brought to the marriage if he sold it without your consent you could actually sue him good luck you know with the the marriage then you know but hey that's fine yeah <laughs> but i think my my point is is that um being seen as what rather than who you know, being seen as female therefore this 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 assumption is made rather than who so in some uh i always try to find things that are relatable about a letter and writing a massively long diatribe about how great you are <laughs> to a friend in response uh, to a bad breakup, I think is in many ways relatable. <laughs> I think you can still find pop songs that are sort of cap capturing that energy. I think the stories she tells about her childhood, incredibly relatable. I mean, obviously the situation of being out as a toddler and sticking a cotton seed up your nose and bothering all the enslaved people in your house is an unusual, not super relatable situation, but toddlers sticking things up their nose is universal. <laughs> the stories of her singing maybe dirty, inappropriate songs that she shouldn't be singing to her dad's friends is very cute. That's something that, I mean, you still see pictures, people taking Polaroid pictures of their kids with like beer cans next to them. That's just classic good old-fashioned parent humor. That's something that has transcended time and space. <laughs> uh, and again, I'm not here to try to say that Elizabeth Park Custis Law is the greatest person who has ever lived. I think she's made a pretty good point of doing that for herself. I do think it's important to look at the way that we judge documents from women that show this kind of arrogance and self-assuredness compared to the way that we view documents from men. I think just as in the 20th century, People are more likely to take men who say they're super great at face value and go, oh, wow, that person might have been great. Whereas a woman who says, hey, I'm super great, to immediately then condemn and question that, I think, just a facet of gendered history that still survives. My point isn't also that women necessarily should be arrogant and we should say that's fine all the time. I think the point is that men need to be less arrogant and we need to start taking men who perhaps talk about themselves in the way that Elizabeth Parkus Law talks about herself less seriously because you're not all that great. 
So with that, I would like to thank my co-host, Lizzie Thomas, uh, who's an excellent historian, an excellent actress, and an excellent first-person interpreter. Um, And she brought a lens to this letter that I really needed, and she made a lot of points that I actually hadn't even thought about. So thank you very much for being a guest. I would like to thank you, my listeners. Again, I'll put as many notes as I can in the show notes. Feel free to check those out. And I am, as ever, your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Catherine again, just checking in. I just wanted to say thank you to any new listeners who may have joined the podcast after Alexis Coe's really delightful write-up of the podcast in her newsletter, Study Mary Kill. Uh, It was incredibly kind of her to write that. I was absolutely flattered. My mother cried. So thank you, Alexis. (laughs) And so thank you for listening. I hope you continue to enjoy and support the podcast. Uh, Feel free to check out our social media. We're on Twitter at H-U-M-S-E-R-V-T. Facebook, also H-U-M-S-E-R-V-T. And our website, www.humservt.com. You can find ways to support the podcast. We have had a flood of financial support for the podcast, which is so very appreciated. This has paid for the web hosting for the podcast. It's paid for some of the audio editing equipment that I've been able to use. So thank you. Uh, If you're able, whatever you give on Ko-Fi, just know that I am incredibly appreciative. (laughs) Again, thank you very much for listening and stay tuned. We've got some more content for you coming up in a few weeks.